Well, I am always focusing on something. Um, sometimes it just feels like my mind just never shuts off. It's always going. Something's always going on. Uh, I'm focusing on work or I'm focusing on church, which sometimes for me is the same thing. I'm focusing on family. We think about, have we contacted this one? Have we uh, had got information passed on to that one? Do they have everything they need? Uh, we began thinking about with school, what's going to go on this semester? How are we, uh, what time is it that we go back to school? When, and some of you parents are like, yes, what is that exact time that we go back to school? You might be ready for that. When does school start? We think about, is everybody okay? We think about sometimes, am I okay? Am I doing all right? We think about what's wrong. And sometimes I'm so often thinking about there is something wrong, trying to figure out what is wrong. My mind is constantly going. It's constantly thinking things. Um, and there's sometimes in my life when actually I'm thinking about nothing. I'm just, uh, just kind of chill. I'm just uh, kind of resting and relaxing. And that's good too. So I'm kind of focusing sometimes on nothing. And here's one thing. I, I used to think that I could focus on several things at the same time, all at the same time. And uh, we, call, we have a word for that. What do we call that? Multitasking. I used to think I was a good multitasker, like I could focus on a whole lot of things at the same time and switch back and forth. But the latest research actually tells us uh, something different. The latest research says that when we multi multitask, we're actually lowering our IQ every time we multitask. And that's a little scary to me because I don't have any IQ that I can afford to lose. <laughs> if you know me, if you've been around me at any length of time, you're like, you're right, Harley, you better focus. <laughs> you better stay tuned. Um, and so, it, so research is telling us we are not designed to multitask. So it turns out we are not designed to focus on several things at the same time. That's what research is telling us. We're not. We're not designed to do that. And here's why. Because we have actually been designed to focus. Now, just think about your day. Whether you realize it or not, you're always focusing on something. You're thinking about something all the time. You're thinking about something. Sometimes we're zoning out. Sometimes we're resting, and that's okay. But sometimes we're focusing on the kids. Sometimes we're focusing on work. Sometimes we're focusing on ourselves. There are times for all of those things. Sometimes we focus on that person that you're in a relationship with, the person you're dating. Maybe it's your spouse. Sometimes you're focusing on a friend or some other different relationship. Sometimes we even focus on something fun. We focus on a hobby. We focus on other things that we can do. See, the point is, every single one of us, myself included, we all focus Everyone focuses. And because everyone focuses, we can understand this. We were designed to focus. We were designed to hone in on something. Now, we understand that sometimes we have physiological issues that get in the way of our focus, right? Squirrel, right? Sometimes we have trouble focusing on one thing and our minds move to something else, but that's okay. We still, even in those cases, we are still designed, even if we struggle a bit, we are still designed to focus. Now, as best we can, that's what we do. Now, while this word focus is descriptive, uh, it describes what we're doing, the word itself doesn't really do anything for us, right? 
I mean, it's just a word. You don't, you don't hear the word focus and immediately begin thinking, okay, let me consider the ramifications of whatever this thing is that I'm focusing on. If I focus on this, this is going to happen. We don't do that. No, it's, it's just kind of a commonplace term, the word focus. We use it without really focusing on it. It's just a word. Now, this is, this is why we want to make a little switch this morning right here. We're going to segue to a different word. Instead of using the word focus, there's a word that also describes the same thing. But when I use this word, it is going to completely change the perspective of what we're talking about. But it still applies to the word focus. It's going to flip the script. So here's the word. Everyone focuses their attention on something. And here's the flip. Everyone worships something. We all do it. We're all actually pretty good at it. It comes natural to us. We have a desire to worship, and that desire comes from God. Actually, the truth is we cannot stop ourselves from worshiping. We can't stop ourselves. We worship the people around us sometimes. Sometimes it's the things that surround us. The truth is we have no choice. Naturally, we all worship something. But think about this. Isn't it interesting how this statement, we all focus on something, it hits our mind so differently than the statement, we all worship something. Both of those are true. Because in this context, they mean the same thing. So our only real choice that we have in the matter of worship is what we worship. We don't have a choice of whether we worship or not. We all worship. The question is what? Now, do we worship the little G's? And we know that there are lots of those. Or do we worship the one big G? That's the question. So I got us started here this morning. I put me two dots <laughs> on my whiteboard. All right, two dots on the whiteboard. So here's what this is going to represent. On this end of the whiteboard, right here, this is going to represent the big G, God. And on this end of this diagram that I'm getting ready to draw, we have the big G. So this is where we worship God and God alone on this end. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, over here on this side, this is the the tons and tons and tons of choices we have in little g worship, all right? And we know that is pretty much endless. So we have over here the extreme worship of one God, God alone, and over here we have the worship of the many, many little g's in the world. And let me get my trusty little marker, and I'm going to create, I'm going to have to turn this to face me, I'm going to create this right here. Not very dark. Get a little darker. There we go. All right. Now, does anyone know what does anyone know what that's called? It's called a bell curve, right? A bell curve. So it tapers off on each end and it's got a nice large 
fat, middle, pretty much like me. I'm a bell curve. <laughs> I'm a living bell curve. All right, so here we have a bell curve. On one end, we have the extreme worship of God alone. On the other end, we have the worship of all the many, many little Gs, however many we choose, down here on this end, endless possibilities. Here's what I want to propose. I, I believe it's very possible that in Malvern and where Cole is today in Stuttgart, I think it's very possible as we are kind of representative, we can be, of much of Arkansas, and maybe even much of America, I, I, I'm going to say most of us are in this bell curve. And by nature, the majority are going to be here in the middle on this bell curve. And so this part of the spectrum is where I'm going to say most of Malvern and Stuttgart, people who claim Christ in Malvern and Stuttgart, most of us are going to find ourselves right here in this bell curve. All right. Now here's what this middle of the curve sounds like. All right. See if this makes sense. The middle of the curve here, the bell curve would say something like, yes, I'm a believer. All right. That may relate to you. Yes, I'm a believer. They also might say, yes, um, they could describe it. Yes, I'm a Christian. So I, I would say the vast majority of us would be right here. If someone is in church or meeting with a church today in Malvern and in Stuttgart, I think the vast majority of those and us who are in a church would be right here in this bell curve. We're on the bell curve. Here's what we would say. It's where we worship in this right here, this middle. We worship what we would say is God plus. God plus. God plus. Here's what we mean by that. We would proudly say and appropriately say that, yes, we believe. We believe in God, the big G. We believe in God. And at the very least, we would say, I at least think highly of God. But because this is where most of us live, here's what we say. We say, yes, I believe. I believe in God, plus, well, I like to add a little something else to it. So let's give some descriptions. Here's what it looks like. Right here in the middle in the bell curve, it's I believe in God plus the American dream. I believe in God plus liberalism. I believe in God plus conservatism. I believe in God plus social media. I believe in God plus family values. I believe in God plus uh, high achievement. I believe in God plus sexual fulfillment. I believe in God plus NASCAR. <laughs> I believe in God plus golf or God plus uh, hunting. I believe in God plus self-improvement, God plus coffee, God plus food. That's probably me. God plus year-round whatever involvement, something, anything that we do year-round or involved in all the time. God plus. God plus theology. Uh, God plus shopping. Here's a big one. This may not relate, but it could. God plus God's rules. See, the God alone people over here, the people who worship God and God alone, to us, they seem a little extreme. I mean, they can be a little creepy. 
the God alone people. Not normal. So we kind of calm things down here in the middle. We try to balance it out, make it a little more normal. Not so creepy. It kind of takes the creepy edge off here in the middle with the God plus. So that's what we do. We add God plus. Now you might wonder, what exactly does God plus look like? So, let's see, we'll refer back to this in a minute. What does God plus look like? Well, it looks a little bit like this right here. So I I tried to place this where most everybody could see it. Um, This is... Uh, this is my very organized God plus section. That's what it kind of looks like when we have a God plus life. We have things pretty organized. And you could think of it like containers or boxes or shoe boxes or a filing cabinet, however you want to think about it. I kind of think about it in terms of boxes. We have our life organized. And we built a very special religious box. A very spe- There's even a little something in there. We built a very special religious box. Now, this religious box is my God box. And I, 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 it is special. It doesn't look so special, but it's special because this is my God box that I built for God, and that contains my relationship with God. It contains my Sundays, It contains my small group night, anything I do with the church. It it might even contain, if I read a Bible verse at another time during the week, all of that goes into my God box. I built a very special box, and I would say it's special. I readily admit this is special because God is special. After all, I believe in God. I believe in God, and He is special. And so he has a special box. And God is everything that we talk about as we teach on Sundays and so much more. We could never cover the extent of how special God is, but he is special, and I admit that. But it would certainly be rude of God. It would be rude, and, and, you know, that's a harsh word. At the very least, it would be inconsiderate. And it would certainly be awkward if God chose to come out of this box that I built for him and say, move into one of these other boxes. You see, let's, uh, let's, it's probably got to be bigger than this, but this is the only one I can grab. Uh, Let's say this is the guy's night out box or the hunting club box, or maybe it's the ladies night out box. It would be really awkward if God chose to move out of the box that I have placed him in and started to meddle in how I've got the rest of my life organized. Because what's in here, really, it's best if he doesn't mess with that. It gets a little awkward. It gets inconvenient. But we all have probably some kind of compartment. And to be honest with you, life for me works best if everything stays exactly where I have placed it, organized it in my life. Because of our compartments that we have in life, 
we are probably, if you're anything like me, more comfortable generally describing ourselves. If you are a Christian, generally describing ourselves as Christians or using the word believers. Sometimes we even go more general than that. Instead of saying we're a Christian or a believer, we say, oh, I go to the Church of Malvern, or I go to Stuttgart Harvest Church, or I go to First Baptist Church, or I go to First First United Methodist Church, or I go to Second Baptist, or Third Baptist, or Fourth Baptist, Fifth, Sixth, Seventh, Eighth, Ninth, Tenth Baptist, whatever. We're sometimes more comfortable describing where we go, where we attend, who we associate with, as opposed to describing ourselves as followers of Jesus. This is important because that's not how God sees us. When God looks at our lives, he doesn't see any of the organization that we've made and the compartmentalization that we have made. So here's how Paul describes it. Let me read this to you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. So Paul is saying, at one time, now he's speaking to believers. He's saying at one time, everyone was on this end of the spectrum. Everyone was here. Serving one of these little G or many of these little G gods. Every single one of us were here living for that little G God. Serving that little G God, chasing after that little G God, giving this little G God first place, first priority, first choice in our lives. To the point that we actually even sacrificed things to serve this little G God. So that's how Paul is starting out his description. We were all on that end. Verse 2. He said, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world. Dis- I mean, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of- in the unseen world. This is so interesting to me. So in that, on this little G end of this spectrum, um, there is a worship leader. Now, we often think of terms of worship leader as what happens up here on Sunday morning when Jacob and Dara and Laura and Colton and, and, and everybody comes up and begins to lead us in worship, right? We begin to think about that. Paul is saying this unseen world that is full of little G's also has a worship leader. He said, We were obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen. It is no accident. This little G worship might seem unorganized, but oh, it's very organized with a worship leader and all. The worship leader is doing everything, absolute everything possible to get everyone to worship more, give first choice to, and sacrifice more for the little G worship. He goes on, describes He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Verse 3. All of us used to live that way. 
following the passionate desires and the inclinations of our sinful nature. So, what this evil worship leader does is he hides the fact that if we live on this end of the spectrum down here, if we live on this end down here, he hides the fact that there is a price that we will pay. All right? There's a price that we will pay for living on that end. He hides that fact. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. Here's where he talks about that. By our very nature, in other words, this comes normal, natural to us to worship something. And also, in, uh, after the fall in the garden, it becomes natural for us to worship everything except God. By our very nature, we are subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. And the evil one, the evil worship leader, hides the fact that if we're living here, we're under judgment. Verse 4. Now this is huge. The first two words here. But God. Okay. This is a huge but. But God is so rich in mercy... Oh my goodness. And he loved us so much that even though we were dead, so even though we were on the other end, the wrong end of the spectrum, under judgment, even though we were dead because of our sins, now listen to what's happening. He, he's identifying a state, a spiritual state, and he's calling it dead. We could say, as good as dead. Dead. Here's what happens. He gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. So now we go to a new state of life. We were dead, but now we have life. Now listen, we're not talking about like zombie life. We're not talking about the walking dead. He said we went from as good as dead to living. There is a complete change of state. And then I love how he says this, it is only by God's grace that you've been saved. I, I, I kind of like how this translation puts that in a parenthesis, because it's like we go from dead to living, and oh, by the way, just to be clear, it's only by God's grace that we've been saved. Verse 6, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us. Listen to this. So here's another change in position here. Seated us with him in the heavenly realms. I don't feel so heavenly. But as God looks at me today, if in fact I have done what he's talking about in order to get me from death to life, if I have submitted my life to that, then he says, from God's perspective, in his eyes, in his view of me, I am now seated with him. That's Jesus in the heavenly realms because we are, again, nothing to do with me, but because we are united with Christ Jesus. Now, let's uh, get some real talk. If you knew, I mean really understood, and let me put myself in this too, 
if I really understood just how dead I was or I am, if I really understood that, and if I really understood that according to to God, according to what Paul is telling us here, that Jesus has brought me back to life. I was as good as dead, and now he's brought me back to life. I would say that's pretty amazing. I, I would say that's, that's pretty extreme. That is an extreme change from dead to living. And that might require an extreme response from me, wouldn't it? Or shouldn't it? Jesus actually describes this state for us. And he describes it in terms of love. I'm not going to quote the passage, but I'm going to just reference it. Here's what Jesus describes. Jesus says that the people who look at their lives and they realize they have been forgiven of much. In other words, they understand, oh boy, I was dead. He says, those people love me much. And then he says, but let's contrast that. Those people who feel like, you know, yeah, listen, I've got some faults. And I've got some problems. Yes, I've got some things where I need forgiveness. But oh my goodness, I am not as bad as that guy. Woo, have you seen him? I'm not as bad as him. I'm not as bad as her. Yes, I've got problems, I understand, and yes, I need his help, but oh boy, not nearly as bad as them. The person who feels like Jesus describes him, who has been forgiven or needs to be forgiven of of little, just some things, he says, those people just have a little love or a little something for Jesus. I was dead. And now I'm alive? Oh, that person loves Jesus with their decisions and their words and their actions. But he describes the person who feels like they've only been forgiven of a little as someone who loves Jesus with just a little of their decisions and their words and their actions. But I have to think to myself, what an extreme change to go from death to move to life. Wow. And then Paul goes on to describe how God uses that change from death as good as dead to alive, how God uses that change in a person's life as an example to say to other people, look, look what I can do. Look what I'm doing. Look what I did. Wow. Here's how Paul describes that. Verse 7. So God can point to us in, and uh, in all future ages as an example of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. But make no mistake, he gets all the glory. 
God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this, he says. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the things that we have done. No, 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 no. So none of us can boast about it. Verse 10, for we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long. Here's the point. If we see ourselves, if we see ourselves as dead because of our addiction to this end over here to little G worship, and now because God has united our lives with the life of Jesus, he's allowed us change. We can no longer really, in that state of change, describe ourselves as simply, well, I go to the church of Malvern, or I go to Stuttgart Harvest Church, or I go to First Baptist, I go to First United Methodist. We can't really describe ourselves that way any longer. Because that doesn't come close to describing the difference between I was as good as dead or I was dead and now because of the person of Jesus, I breathe again. Now, but what does describe that? Maybe it's this phrase. I'm ruined. I'm ruined for Jesus. I think if we truly wrap our hearts and our minds around the concept that we were dead, but now we have life, that we will be ruined for anything, anything the world has to offer except Jesus. We'll be ruined for it. And if that truly describes us, if that really, really did describe us, I am ruined for Jesus, you know what that means? It might mean that some people are going to take a step back from us. Because they don't know what to do with that. Because someone who's ruined for Jesus, I mean, they could, that could be a little awkward. That could be a little unsettling. Think about that phrase. Ruined for anything but Jesus. That is a stark contrast because in America, that's pretty much out of the question for us. I mean, ruined for Jesus, I, I mean, that's something for the creepy people. See, what Paul has described, um, it has nothing to do with tips on living. It has nothing to do with, uh, with the best tricks and the best practices for living the Christian life. No, no, being run for Jesus, that only happens through an ever-deepening relationship with Jesus. Paul is describing in what we've read what a ruined for Jesus life looks like. And Paul continues, he, he goes on to say, um, it's not just for the Jews, he says, this ruined for Jesus life, not just for the Jews. Um, and he's saying that because the people... Many of them were Jews that he was speaking to. And he's like saying, it's not just for you. In fact, instead, it is for the entire world. This run for Jesus' life, the entire world. It's for every person who submits their life 
to the hands and the care of Jesus, that's for them. And when that happens, those people become a child of God, and he describes it not just a child of God, but you also get the family inheritance when you become adopted into that family of God. You get the inheritance. And that all comes from being connected with Jesus. You see, all of those people connected to Jesus make up what Paul and Jesus both describe as his gathering. His gathering. Now today, we call that the church. All right, that's what we call it. We call it the church. He calls it the gathering. And Paul describes that God's plan and his purpose from the very beginning of creation was for all of the people to be so in love with God, so in love with Jesus, because Jesus was changing their lives and the lives of the people who make up the church, changing it so much that Jesus, get this, this is what Paul describes in the verses before. He says, God can point to their lives, these people who make up the church, their lives being so different. He points to their lives as an example. This time, not an example for the whole world to see. This time, God points to their lives as an example to the evil worship leader and all of his, whatever you call them, his minions. God points to the lives who make up the church, those changed lives, radically changed lives, who went from death to life, and he points to them, and then he points to the evil worship leader and all of his crew, and he says, look, you are losing. You're losing. Wow. He goes on in Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 14, Paul says, when I think of this, so he just described this. He says, when I think of this, I fall to my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and of earth. And he says, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Paul again is describing what this ruined for Jesus life looks like. Then, verse 17, then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. He says, just further describing this, your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. He goes on, and may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is. Paul is saying, the person who is ruined for Jesus, there is a growing appetite for more. A growing appetite to know him more and more and more. Verse 19, he says, may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. See, taking Jesus out of the compartment 
that we've built for him and allowing Jesus to free range into every area, every compartment of our life, just letting him free range taking him out of the box and letting him into every area of our lives, letting him in the middle of absolutely everything, into all of our chaos, into the things that we think are in order. Every single compartment that we have, submitting those to Jesus. Verse 20. Now, Paul says, all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul is describing God's desire. You know, we could kind of call this uh, God's vision. In January, it's it's a big time for places where you work and maybe sometimes even in families to say, here's our vision for the family. Here's our vision for our workplace and what we want to happen. Here's our vision. And, And Paul here is describing God's vision for what he desires in the life of his people. And so I would say, if that's God's vision, then I would say, that has to be our vision. And so for 2023, on this first day of 2023, and we could say, and beyond, the vision would be that we would be so changed by Him, so connected to Him, that we become Bored by everything but him. That's what I think Paul's describing. If our lives have been ruined by Jesus, ruined for Jesus, then all of those years that I have spent trying harder, working harder to be better, to do better, to know better, all of those years trying to get better, trying to uh, understand better tips for living, better tricks and strategies for the Christian life. All of that now just becomes so annoying. All that is, is just God plus worship right here in the big fat middle of the bell curve. It's all just background noise. Because we have been, according to what God desires in our lives, ruined for anything. Jesus. And I just have to be honest. This bell curve right here in the middle, that God plus living, it is not making a difference in our lives. It leaves us in this middle of the bell curve along with what I would say is most of American Christianity. And listen, I understand because I'm guilty of this too. 
you know, I, as I have grown up, I'm one of the folks who actually grew up in church. My parents had me in church uh, when I was little and kept me in church. I, I grew up in church. And so growing up, being a part of a church, I have always defined um, uh, this thing called discipleship. And, and what that means is growing in my Christianity, growing as a follower of Jesus. I've always defined that kind of looking like progress, like through a class, like through a school. All right? So in my mind, it, growing in Jesus has always been kind of like, okay, discipleship. So you study hard and you learn more. You, you gain more from your study in order to know more, to be able to, what, pass the test, to get through the class, and we move on. We pass that, we move on to the next class, the next step in our discipleship. We get more knowledge. The more knowledge we have, the more we can answer the questions, the more we can pass the test, the more we can move on, the more we grow, right? But most importantly, we want to pass the test, because in America, we want to keep going. But here's what I'm realizing. More and more, I'm understanding that's, that's not it. It doesn't work that way. Growing in Jesus is not a class. It's not a study. It doesn't work that way. Because most often, that leads us to this great big fat middle of God plus. A place where lives are barely changed. Yeah, there's change, but barely change. But if what Paul is saying is true, according to Paul, according to the new covenant, according to Jesus... True disciples follow Jesus and live out his mission because they are captured and they are carried away by him, by Jesus. They're so connected, they're so stuck on him that the natural next step is an overwhelming compulsion to give their lives over to him and to his purpose. I think many would describe it as, I don't feel like I have a choice. This is just the thing I must do. When we hear the words in the New Covenant of Paul describing himself as a slave to Jesus, we put that way over here in the extreme, and we say, oh, wow, yeah, that's extreme. Paul says he's a slave to Jesus. Because for them, nothing compares to him. When someone does live in that God and God alone end on the worship spectrum, they understand that their life is ruined without Jesus. Their life is ruined for Jesus. They realize without him, they're dead. And they don't see growth in Jesus as a class. It's not a conference. It's not a study. In fact, we don't even have to spend our time trying to do good things and trying to produce fruit, 
trying to produce change. So, church in Malvern and where Cole is today at Stuttgart Harvest Church, here's our vision. This is it right here. It's what we hope that together, those who choose to go on this journey will experience uh, along the way through 2023. Not only that we'll experience that individually, but also that we will experience that as a church, as the church in Malvern, as Stuttgart Harvest Church. Because when the living, breathing Jesus is at the center of everything in our lives, fruit happens. It just happens. When the living, breathing Jesus is at the center of everything in our lives, fruit happens. Without this in 2023, I would say we're in real trouble. And Jesus would say we're in real trouble because Jesus tells us, speaking of this fruit, apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Here's my question. Even after everything that you've done spiritually in your life, after everything that you've been going through, after everything you've studied and everything you've learned, everything you have done to produce change, every tip that you have followed, every trick of the trade you have tried, If that has left you thirsty instead of quenched, I think there's a reason. If that has left you saying, is that all there is? Is that all that this is about? If it has left you discontent and left you bored, with Jesus, then it leaves us gravitating toward this great big middle of the bell curve. Because it, if it has left us bored with Jesus, then we might say, yes, Jesus is very, very important. Jesus is God. Jesus died for me. But if, it's, if we have been left bored with Jesus, then we start going back to the middle to pick up some little G's to add to it to make our life worth it make our life better, make our life manageable to make us love our life. And we go back over here to the God plus life. So maybe starting in 2023, maybe it's time to move away from just trying harder and move away from trying to do better. See, we're already worshiping something. We're already worshiping something. God is probably among them. And we've added to that a stockpile of other things that we also include in our worship. But what if? What if instead we gathered up all of those worship chips that we have in life? 
and we put them in one big pile and we shove all of those chips to that spot marked Jesus right there. And we put everything there. What if we decided in 2023, we're going to go all in with Jesus? Why not take the biggest risk of your life on the safest bet in the universe? Here's the bad news. It won't happen because I'm talking about it. It won't happen because you think that, well, it's a good idea. I should do that, maybe. I think what you'll probably discover is the only way to get to that point The reason that you finally push all of those worship chips into that spot labeled Jesus, the only reason is because you simply can't help yourself. You can't stop yourself. And that's where we want to go this year. That's where we want to go as a church this year. So I just simply end with this question before I pray. Will you come with us? I hope you will. If so, see you next week. God, I used to live in sin. You described it as with the rest of the world, obeying that evil commander that evil worship leader of the unseen world. But God, you were so rich in mercy and you loved us so much. You gave us life. God, you're going to radically change us. And in doing so, Christ is going to make his home in our hearts as we trust in you. Our roots are going to grow down into your grace, into your love that will keep us strong. And we ask God that you keep changing us. Giving us the power to understand as you described God's people should. How wide and how long and how high and how deep your love is. And God, when I think of these things, I fall on my knees. I'm ruined for anything but you, Jesus. May we fall in love with you. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen.